Good morning. If you are visiting us this summer, welcome. And if you're just coming back from break, welcome. Um, our summer sermons have been a little bit different from our usual. They are uh, one part sacred text with a pastor and one part sacred storytelling with um, family and friends from our community. Um, and so we are going to invite you to draw the connections between them, however you come to them. That'll be your work to do. But today, we hear a sacred word in a little bit from two of our community friends, uh, Becky and David, and what it's like to live with bodies that are not always well. Bodies that sometimes may fail you at any moment's notice. So thank you both in advance for sharing a part of um, your journey with us today. Um, pain really is an interesting thing to think about because pain is something that is pretty central to the human experience. Because physical or emotional pain as it be, pain is something that everyone here in this room can relate to. From the tiniest baby bodies in our midst to the longest living bodies in our midst, we have all encountered pain in some way or another. And if I asked you today about a time, to think about a time when your body was in physical pain, I can imagine that you can think of many times, many things, um, right away. Just this week, while I was walking from my bathroom back to my bed in the middle of the night, um, I slammed my shin on the edge, I already saw some of you people like cringe. All I had to say is like my shin and a bed and midnight, that's all you needed, right? Uh, but I did, I slammed my shin at the edge of my bed and that's exactly it. I yelped out loud, one of those, one of those like silent yelps. Have you done those before when it just hurts so bad? You're just like, ah, and you just hold on to it because it, it goes deep, right? And I did, I held my breath and I was in disbelief. Are you kidding me? It's midnight, right? And I reached down to hold my shin and to put pressure on it, you know, because that's what we do when things hurt. We like attend to our, our hurts. And it didn't work. It didn't work to put pressure on it and it didn't work to rub it or I tried to lay down or anything, but there I was in the dark, wallowing in my pain by myself for what seemed like forever. Every second that passed was brutal. So much so that I might have said some colorful words to express the angst of my hurt. I'm not going to tell you what those colorful words are. You do that. But I felt it moving from my shin through my entire body. So you can imagine that this experience for me, well, it was, it was painful. However, um, this kind of pain, though it is intense and it is very real, this kind of pain would eventually soothe. And eventually I fell asleep and I forgot about it completely the next morning. This morning, the kind of pain that we lend an ear to listen to is the kind of pain that doesn't go away in the morning, but rather it lingers and it stays for months and sometimes years. It's chronic pain, we call it. The Institute of Medicine reports that over 116 million Americans, this is Americans alone, live with this level of pain, chronic pain, which means that over half of the population in America is living with some sort of chronic pain, and likely that would mean that many of us in this room this morning are living with some sort of 
chronic pain also. And pain, as it makes its home in people's bodies, it brings its toll and with its toll an array of questions. Unlike a few weeks ago, when the inquisitive why led us to adventure and discovery with Kirby, this why is a little bit different. This why is both, or it can be both existential and theological. Because pain in its gravity, it makes theologians of all of us. Both those experiencing the pain and those of us watching. The book of Job wrestles with the question of pain, and it never quite comes to a resolve. Job is one of pain's most eloquent writers, says Barbara Brown Taylor. Affliction comes to Job several times, and the first couple of times, Job seems to bounce back, if you will. But the last time is when his health is afflicted. Job 2, he is afflicted with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Job took a potsherd, a broken piece of ceramic material with which he could scrape himself, and he sat among the ashes. Job's pain grew, and it grew, and a chapter later, Job is cursing the day that he was born, and he cries out to the divine and cries out to anyone who will hear five different times, asking the question, why? Job is not alone in his affliction. His wife and three closest friends are with him after learning of these afflictions and each of them taking a turn at their best way to attend to Job's big why questions. And in their interpretations, they bring to Job unhelpful answers, actually, um, that sadly bring suffering to Job rather than relief. Because pain is subjective, we'll learn that today. His wife and his friends seeing through a lens that is probably their bodies healthy and thriving. Over and over, Job dialogues with his friends, and he pushes back on their encouragements, rejecting the first idea that he was likely guilty of something, even if he didn't know that he was, his friends tell him, that he might as well just apologize for everything, and then, you know, God will sort it out, and, and God will grant you whatever relief you need in some way, but just, you might have done something wrong, nobody knows, lean in, say sorry. And even the advice from his wife that maybe, maybe you should just shortcut the whole thing, cut the fat, curse God, and just die. That's how bad it was. But Job's communal options for support, all of a sudden, they didn't seem as great as they were before his afflictions. And still, his pain persists in his body and in his spirit. So like Job, people dealing with intense pain in our modern day often wrestle with the same big question, why? And they spend time, money, and significant amount of energy trying to understand the condition of their bodies. Perhaps in their own ways, trying to understand God's purpose in this pain manifesting in their bodies. <clears throat> Unlike God, unlike Job, however, many people with chronic pain are dealing with the pain that is not visible to the rest of us or to the rest of the world as Job's pain was because most chronic pain can be completely invisible to the average person. It is often an assumption that pain must not be that bad if we can't see it. 
Karen Duffy, an author who writes about her own journey with chronic pain, describes it this way. One of the punitive effects of pain is that it is unmeasurable. It is difficult or impossible to share. <clears throat> to the sufferer, the pain cannot be denied. To the person next to her, the pain cannot be confirmed. Pain is subjective. It is unknowable unless you are afflicted with it. Listening to stories from people with severe pain was incredibly educating to me and eye-opening because we all make judgments about people based on what we see on the outside. If you see on the outside a healthy-looking person, then you assume that internally they are healthy as well and that that must mean that life, well, it must not be that bad. But chronic pain is growing diagnosis in the medical world. So, so much so that we finally started to, <coughs> excuse me, really talk about it. Even Netflix has launched uh, a series, a TV series called Afflicted, where they follow seven different people who are diagnosed with chronic pain and illness. And as I watched several episodes of chronic pain of these people, and I also listened this week as I sat with our storytellers, the often deteriorating part of their pain is often brought by a community that is unsupportive of groups of people that question and, and doubt the realness of the sufferer's pain. Barbara Brown reminds us that there is a very big difference between pain and suffering. One is not greater or more significant than the other, but they do arrive to us from different places at different means. Pain exists in the flesh something that afflicts our physical bodies. And suffering is something that comes to be experienced in our minds, in our emotions, in our spirit. While <clears throat> we can't help often people's physical pain, it turns out that we often do contribute to their state of suffering. People often in goodwill, we know this, try to act as healers and advisors to people with pain and, and they overload these already afflicted individuals with solutions or advice and even theological interpretations that are really less helpful. Feeling pain is not optional for the human beings and it is very much a subjective experience. So we walk this fine line trying to be people who walk alongside the people in our midst who are suffering in their pain. And our tendencies often to mirror our own internal fears about pain. Because pain is demanding and it has a way of completely altering lives and making us feel as if we have lost control and reason in who we are. We fear for the person in pain and we fear that this too will bring out our own pain. So how do we live alongside friends in our community with this kind of pain? What do we do with our tendencies to answer those big theodicy questions of why illness is so severe and pain so devastating can happen to people around us that are good in the way that it happened to Job who was good? Where is God in all of this? Job's friends, likely driven by their own grief and seeing their friend in such agony, try to be present with their friend. 37 full chapters of passionate dialogue back and forth with his friends questioning God and his life. Job is relentless through his pain, though a very evident depression sets in for Job. 
through and through the words you can read through a very, without hearing a single word from God until chapter 38. And then Job, when he does hear a word from God, Job doesn't actually receive answers to his questions, but rather God speaks to Job in questions, answering your question with a question. But I don't believe that God does this to ignore Job's pain or to minimalize his experience, but rather to to help Job see how vast God's work and reach is, and in fact, that there is pain in all of the cosmos. You're so cute. Thank you. That there is pain in all of the cosmos. That's Audrey Cortez, thank you. And at the conclusion of the book of Job, He still doesn't receive a clear-cut answer from God still to his whys. But Job's paradigm has shifted significantly. At the conclusion of the book of Job also depicts a happily ever after vibe. You kind of get that. And then he gets his family and he gets blessed. All of this good stuff we do see at the end of the book of Job. However, it's helpful also to notice that the text does not describe Job being relieved or freed of his physical pain. It never says he was healed. We don't know if he continues to live years and years with this pain, but the suffering he felt had subsided in the process. God gave some notes to Job's community about the entire experience as well. There is a way to be a better community to our friends and family who are in pain. And today, it is from their mouths that we get to hear, in fact, what a community can do to come alongside with them. Not to ease their pain or to diagnose it, that is not our job, but to stand alongside them. To stand alongside people like Becky and David and Kimber, who Chris will tell us about, as we all figure out navigating this world all together. Listen for a sacred story from Becky, from David, and from Kimber. So the empty chair that just came up was for our fourth storyteller, our uh, Kimber Porter. Kimber was with us on Tuesday when we got together, Wednesday when we got together, but then life was interrupted, which is really what their stories are about this morning. Kimber's now in the hospital, but she's okay. She went to surgery on Thursday. She's recovering. She's watching. Do you all want to say hi, Kimber? (laughs) Hi, Kimber. She gave us permission to tell parts of her story, so we'll do that today. Um, Becky and David, do you want to you want to begin, or you want me to begin with Kimber's summary? Kimber, all right. So a picture of Kimber Porter is going to go on the screen for us just now, and let me summarize. In about the year 2000, Kimber's body um, began to break down. Kimber suffers from chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy. You got it. There's a reason she calls it CIDP. Kimber, and and, uh, you'll see a picture of her face in a moment. You might recognize her because she was raised in this community. 
This, she says, hit her like a ton of bricks, like Guillaume Barre, and I know many of you have had experience with that. CIDP is kind of the chronic cousin of Guillaume Barre. Guillaume Barre is acute and hopefully resolves. This one hangs on for life, CIDP. Kimber told us when we met together that the pain started with her spine and moved down to her limbs, and as time went on, she began to lose her mobility. She went to the hospital. They couldn't figure out what was happening. It took about a month for the doctors to diagnose. Her pain is deep within her tissue. While she's in the process of losing mobility, her pain is also deep down inside of her tissue. It, the nerve, the wrapping around the nerve, the myelin around the nerve, deteriorates with this disease. Um, Kimber says, <laughs> listen, I'm going to tell you, I asked our storytellers, can you, can you think of any humorous story you can tell about chronic pain? They all said no. Kimber said, well, in my family, when someone needs to get something out of the oven and we can't find the oven mitts, they send me. Because <laughs> I'm not going to feel the hot dish anyway. This is what Kimber lives with. She was an attorney uh, practicing dependency law. She was the voice and the representative for children in the county of San Bernardino who were in the care of Child Protective Services. She thought she could go back to work. She tried, and she tried again, and eventually uh, that was deteriorating her health even more, so she quit. She, Kimber told us, I was 38 years old at the peak of my career when this struck my body. That's a summer, summer of what Kimber lives with. David, what about you? Well, this is a... Uh guess a hereditary problem for me. Um, I suffer from migraines, and uh, this is a uh, this is a disease of the brain that that covers about oh maybe 15 percent of the world population, about three times more in women than men. And my mom's at it struck me a lot in the, starting in my mid-twenties. And um, comes from the Greek hemi, uh, hemicrania, half the skull. And for me, mostly on the right half. Can you hear him okay? Get a little closer. There here. you go. We there want we it right go. there you go. You're only responsible for all the media around here. Now, no, the no. microphone has to go right here. Yeah. So it's migraines, it's hereditary. It's migraines, and um, back in those days, they're, they're, and still they really don't know the why it's happening. Um, but in those days, there wasn't a whole lot of very good treatment for it. Uh, even back in, you know, Thomas Jefferson was a sufferer and, and he would get barks and other treatments for it. And frankly, when I got him, the best I could do, uh, short of going to the hospital and getting some major narcotics, was uh, to go find a dark place and sit it out for two or three days. And I think many of you who have them know that feeling. It gets accompanied with nausea, and if you can't take your drugs, uh, you really do have to sit it out. Um, sometimes I would 
get some ginger ale or 7-Up, and if I could keep that down for a while, I would uh, think, okay, I can now take, and I would take a combination of Advil and Tylenol and whatever I could uh, in quantities that would probably make my doctors shudder, and um, hopefully that would take enough of an edge off that I could get to sleep. Um, I've <clears throat> I got to know some of the triggers. Cigarette smoke is one of them. Well, I get to work in a place that doesn't smoke, and I work with people that don't smoke. But going to restaurants before they were enlightened enough to stop smoking in restaurants was a, was a place I didn't go much. If you had to fly in the days before they prohibited smoking, that was a guaranteed way to end your flight with a migraine. Uh, so there were, there were a lot of interruptions in life because of those things. All right, that's a summary of what you're living with. Yeah. Becky, welcome home, by the way. Vaughn's traveling partner. We're glad you're home. <clears throat> Thank you. Tell us what it is you live with. Um, okay, so I have a list. and. Uh, Okay, so I have fibromyalgia, and I was di diagnosed with it uh, about 10 years ago. And so fibromyalgia is an autoimmune disorder where your pain receptors are off, and so they o overreact. Um, so for that reason, I have widespread muscle chronic pain every day. And... <laughs> It's okay, because this is why we're telling our stories. So this means every day Becky's in pain. It's not a matter of is there pain, it's how much pain. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, in the good days, it's just like um, feeling incredibly sore, and I'm able to manage the pain with like uh, just like trying to take things very slow and stretching and constantly moving and um, doing all kinds of tricks <laughs> um, and finding the right things to take to help for the pain on the bad days. It's like pinks and needles all over my body and it feels like a knife is being stabbed on my muscles mm -hmm. um, and, and I can't stop it. Um, and so it happens mostly all over my neck. It's all over my body, down my spine, um, on my hips, down my, my, my legs. Um, I've had uh, a surgery for my wrists, because well, a couple of surgeries for my wrists because the pain was so bad that it had gone down to my wrist and I couldn't type, so I didn't work for two years when I first was diagnosed with this disease. Um, currently, I'm able to work full-time, um, so, so I still have a lot of pain, and sleeping is terrible, so I can't sleep well. Uh, I've never had a good night of sleep in the last 10 years, so I just have to kind of deal with that in various ways. And so <laughs> I wrote here, I live in a permanent state of sleep and energy deprivation. Um, so that's my new normal. Um, and then I have Hashimoto's disease. So that means that my body, it's another autoimmune disorder. So my body is mistakenly um, attacking my 
thyroid. Um, and so I mess this up with my hormones, um, all kinds of hormones. And it also makes my level of energy really low and it leads to dry skin, dry hair. And then I'm prone to depression as if I wasn't already with the fibromyalgia. <laughs> uh, so, and then last but not least, I also have uh, ir irritable bowels syndrome, um, which means that uh, my digestive system uh, misunderstands the food that I'm eating and it thinks that the food is bad for me, so I have to stay away from many things. And so um, I think that's the hardest right now because I have a very strict diet and it's not because I'm trying to lose weight or look cute for the record. <laughs> it's just because if I eat a single gram of what I cannot eat, I am unable to function. Um, and so I cannot have gluten, dairy, no grains. So that means like no rice, no corn, no legumes. So no beans, no lentils, no garbanzos, you name it. So I used to be a vegetarian, so now I changed my diet for that. I think you said this week you can eat about five things. Yeah. That's about right. Yeah, so five things. One is um, most things that move. Most things that move? Yeah. Yeah. So you're not being tempted by our Instagram pictures of lentil loaf. I am highly tempted, and I wish that I could eat it because I used to, but not anymore. So most things that move are on your <laughs> so list. So most things that move, um, but they have to be clean and organic and all of that and then all fruits all vegetables thank god and all nuts and seeds so uh you heard the word autoimmune both kimber porter who's not here and she's watching in the hospital and becky you you're um what you live with is in the family the autoimmune family could you just raise your hand if that's you or someone in your family living with some autoimmune diagnosis right now and just leave your hands up for a minute Right, David just said, wow. Thank you, we are hearing more and more about the autoimmune family. All of my siblings, all of my cousins, all live with an autoimmune. So there's some genetic conversation we're learning <coughs> that goes into this. If you could talk to us about, um, we probably catch a little bit, but if you could talk more specifically about the ways what you live with interrupts life. Let me represent Kimber, who's watching right now. Kimber, when I ask her, how, how does this chronic pain interrupt your life? It's almost a laughable question when we listen to what you're living with. Kimber said, um, I was really angry the first year. It, again, took her doctors a long time to figure out what this was, and she remembers being in the hospital, and the doctors were right outside of her room, and she heard them whispering, Kimber is crazy. She's crazy, which is when she asked her family to get her out of the hospital. Uh, she found a neurologist who would dig in deep and work with her, but she says, I was really angry the first year, but then I had to decide, am I going to be angry or am I going to try to live? For Kimber, she said, the interruptions are um, a lot of isolation. You tend to isolate yourself because it's easier to remain isolated than disappoint people. Uh, you reduce your friendship list and sometimes your family list. You miss a lot of parties and events and people wonder, are you, really, are you really that sick that you can't come to a graduation? For Kimber, she 
interrupted her practice of the law, so her vocation and her career, um, she gave up. And she said, surprisingly enough, I deal with guilt. Um, that I live with some guilt over all of this. What are ways, David, that migraines interrupt the regular rhythm? Well, I feel lucky that uh, in some ways that uh, our office changed to a four by 10 work week, um, but in some ways that added to the stress. You work long hours. So you work four 10-hour days. Yeah. And then talk to us about what that triggers when you're not yeah. at the office. <laughs> sometimes, uh, sometimes stress is itself a trigger. And then you, you put in the long hours, and then those hours are up, and that itself triggers. And uh, so you, you come to Friday, and all of a sudden, that head starts pounding. You feel that aura and that migraine comes on. You called it de-stress headache. De-stress headache. So the work week is finally done and you get to relax, relax, but it triggers a fresh headache. Yeah, and I've, I've even felt that sometimes on a vacation. You, you, you're working and then you go on a vacation and that second day of vacation hits. You, you've flown somewhere and you get out there and you're free and then a headache hits. And I think my family can attest to that. You ask them, you'll probably find the second day headache is, is all too frequent. And that ruins a day of vacation. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, fortunately some modern treatment has get it, but I was kind of saving that for the medicine and the uh, modern day medicine problems. Okay, we'll hang on to that. Mm-hmm. Becky, Becky, give us a little bit of life interrupted. Um, um, uh, well, all of my problems started back in 2008, which is when I had just graduated from my master's and I started working. And um, since then, life <laughs> interrupted my life in so many ways. I mean, from like my plans of when I was going to get my license um, to practice as a psychotherapist and how I was just going to like grow in my career and uh, how I was going to maybe have a family someday or all this stuff. And that's all out the window. I mean, basically any sort of planning, uh, usually like it's, I don't really plan. Um, I have dreams and goals, but I have to be very flexible with them. So because things could change uh, at any moment. Um, Yeah. You said even financial planning. That's just a joke. Oh, absolutely. No, it's, I mean, yeah. I mean, there's only so much little financial planning that one can do when you're not sure you'll be able to work for the rest of your life, you know? And I'm only... 35, so. We want to talk a little bit about your support systems. What does a helpful support system look and feel like? Becky, why don't you start? Um, I'm grateful for my support system. So uh, I have um, found some good doctors. Uh, It took me a while, but I appreciate my doctors and my physical therapists. And then whenever I need it, I also see a psychotherapist, which helps me a lot, and then my friends and my family. So uh, in the best cases scenarios, uh, they're amazing because they're willing to work with my needs and limitations, 
they understand how sacred uh, it is for me to be in a place where uh, I can have really good rest. Uh, they understand if I'm not able to do everything that they want to do, like if we go on trips or something. Um, they understand if I need to cancel plans, and then they're also cook things that I'm able to eat, which is really nice. So, David, what does good support look like for you? Well, I think first of all, having family and friends that have understood, you know, what uh, what this is, and uh, being able with. Uh, good modern medicine to be able to say, look, this is going to take a couple hours to clear out and um, take room for that quiet, dark place to, to get over this um, is very helpful. They and, know when uh, you go to the quiet, dark place that you need to be there. That I need to be there. Yeah. And uh, give me that space. And once, it's, once we're out of that place, then we can get back to work. There's a lot we don't have time to say this morning. I was taken by the dialogue earlier this week, especially when Kimber and Becky started comparing notes about healthcare providers mm -hmm. and needing to learn a language that healthcare providers could understand and to get people to believe what you deal with and live with and to take you at your word. Um, I learned that when we ask this question, how is your pain on a scale of one to 10? What do you, how do you feel about that question, Becky? <laughs> uh, I think it's a joke. It's a joke. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> it's subjective and it's there every day. And one moment I could be at a two and the next moment I could be at an eight or a 10. I don't know why. Yeah. yeah. You really have to understand their technical language. You really have to dig into what physicians and, and the medical system really means by that in order to talk to them about it. Because we really feel like, oh man, this is like 100 or 200. It's, it's off the scale for us. Yeah, yeah. 10 is a joke, 200 mm -hmm. is real, right? <laughs> Kimber told us, can you put her picture back up on the screen one more time? I, I was taken by this. Kimber reflected on the opioid crisis in our country and how concerned we all are, but what that means for people in chronic pain is that certain medications that were on the table and available before are pulled from those who actually need them. And how you do become an exceptional researcher and advocate for the kind of care that you seem to need so your body can make the next movement. That, she really had my attention. I want to read a list of questions to you. Actually, I'm going to read them to the congregation, okay? These are perhaps some of the worst things we could say to people who live with chronic pain. Are you ready? Have you tried A, B, or C? No, really, you should have some charcoal and dip it in black pepper and pour it in oh, tomato soup over the top and do a, stand on your head while you drink it. We should never say these things to people in chronic pain. How about this one? Well, my friend has the same thing you have. Do you know what worked for them? Or are you sure it's not all in your head? Mm. Well. Did, did you, well, it is all in your head. <laughs> <laughs> you are with us, David Johnson. <laughs> did you pray about it? Have you talked to your pastor? Maybe you should get up, get outside, get exercise, get fresh air. 
Um, maybe you're focusing and obsessing on this too much. You should suck it up. Everybody deals with pain. Have you seen a doctor? Have you taken anything? Maybe, are you just craving attention? Can I ask you? Because, you know, it seems like you're sick a lot. Um, why can't they just fix you? Could it, is it that much pain? You don't look sick. How does that list resonate? All too often. Pretty accurate. Yeah. So we could avoid all of this. Yes. Yes, we could avoid all of this. It was helpful to hear you tell me that. When we're done today, it was helpful if none of us approach our friends and say, have you tried? In fact, one of you said the other day, everybody's got a, an herb. <laughs> everybody's got an herb we should try. So when we're done today, we promise we will not approach them with any solution or fix. We're only listening. Can I ask you about God finally as we... Um, conclude our conversation. I asked you about God in your journey. For a lot of people, the anger that comes from this. I asked you specifically about God and, and that, and as you think about your future. David, what about you? I uh, have two characters in the Bible. One is Elijah, one is David. Elijah hid in a cave until the Lord brought a gentle whisper. And David hid in a lot of caves. And uh, I guess in Psalm 31, in the shelter of your presence you hide me. In your dwelling you keep me safe. In my alarm I said I am cut off from your sight. Yet you heard me cry for mercy when I called to you for help. Mm. And I think that one resonates with me a lot, mm. particularly when I'm hiding in the cave. Kimber told us earlier this week that a lot of people get angry and stay angry with God. She said, I don't believe God did this to us. We live in an imperfect world. Disease and pain happen. Um, I, yeah, I cry out, God, help me, <laughs> but I don't expect God's going to immediately take my pain away. Um, I've come to understand this. What about you, Becky? Uh, same as her. Like, I don't believe that God made this happen. I don't believe that he said, well, let's make Becky learn a lesson. Um, so... Uh, he's not trying to teach me a lesson, so he has nothing to do with this. It's not his fault. Um, and I've come to learn it and accept it. And instead, I see God as someone who is next to me. He understands pain. And, um, yeah. I was particularly taken by your paragraph when you said <laughs> sometimes you wrestled with God early on. Come on, God, what's wrong with you? You need me in this world. So... Since you brought that up, yeah. <laughs> uh, I didn't bring it up, she did. Um, yeah, I mean, it, that, what I just said was not the way that I've always felt. Mm -hmm. At the very beginning, I was really angry. Um, so yeah, so at the very beginning, I was really angry uh, because I couldn't work for like two and a half years. And so it was just really frustrating because I was angry. I, I would ask God like, you know, why would you allow this? Like, I just want to help the world to make it a better place. 
I'm a social worker, so that's why. Um, so big heart, you know, like, you need me, and, you know, take this away, and now I can't help your people, and all this stuff. But, um, but eventually, like I said, I came to a place where it's like this poor, poor guy or girl, whoever, you know, it's not his fault. Um, and, um, and what's wonderful is that, um, in a way, you know, this, this pain and this mess um, has been a blessing on its own. I mean, uh, I don't want it, but uh, there are some good things that have come out of it. Like, I feel like in the past I was very driven by like my career and achieving things and all of that. But uh, this being so sick has really kind of pushed me to value things that are non material and also like not uh, define all of my worth by my accomplishments. Um, and so because of that, I'm, I'm better off, I think, mm. and happier because, yeah, I can value what I have now and friends and family and still be able to help. Um, so, yeah. When we sat together earlier this week, one of you said, there is no more or less pain. We all have pain. And I think more than one of you said this and tended to agree, but we want to acknowledge in your community today there is actually more pain. You seem to have a little bit more than a lot of people. You have a lot more than I do. We're really grateful you could talk about it today. Thank you. You're welcome. table, you can't work here as a pastor. Put that on your resume. One of the things that I remember hearing also and learning um, from our storytellers was not so much, it's, it's not a question about why, um, it's about when. Um, it's, not, it's not why I have pain anymore, it's about when it will come and how severe it will be and how much it will affect my day or my life in that way. And I hear something in that, I feel, that allows for each of us to think differently and allow for something to grow in us. That when we hear that, when we hear something like that, when, um, I hear also the words of Jesus. Um, when Jesus says that you attended to the least of these or my people, you also attended to me. And so in this practice, as we hear people, friends, and family in our midst um, in pain that is different than ours, um, may we be led by this when, because there will be a time when you and I will be in pain, when you and I will be in extra need of love and courage and support and empathy and grace. And when that time comes, we get to be the voice and the love that God is asking us to be. So wherever you are and um, know that God, God is with us. Um, God is aware 
of pain, even more so than perhaps we can at all given times be. And that God is, in fact, attending to that pain. Whether it doesn't match our idea of how to fix pain, God is attending and there. And may we trust that, and, and in trusting that, may, may we also attend to the people in our midst in that same way. It will be a little inconvenient. It will mean that when we say, are you feeling okay, that we have to wait for a real response and not brush it off. And that when somebody says no, that we're ready to listen and to be open to whatever it is that their pain is bringing. And that, friends, is sacred work. It is the work of Jesus. Seeking out pain, not to diagnose it, not to get rid of it, but definitely to minimize the suffering of our friends in pain. And the rest we leave to Jesus.